This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, this is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. One cannot think of Malaysia's independence without thinking of the late Tunku Abdul Rahman Putra Al-Hajj, Malaya's first Prime Minister. Ahead of Merdeka Day, we want to reflect on the role Tunku played in securing our nation's independence and also look at the role the Merdeka Constitution played in shaping the nation's new path as an independent nation. Now joining me to do this are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salem Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya. He's also a trustee at Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. Also joining me, Johan Rosali Watuth, a trustee at Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman, and Aida Tien, the deputy CEO of Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. Welcome all of you. How are you today? Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me today. So yes, we're just, you know, less than a week uh, away from Merdeka. I just wanted to get your thoughts. You know, I mean, we're going to talk about Tunku a lot today, but, you know, when you think of independence, uh, you think of Malaysia's independence. What are some of the first thoughts that come to your mind, especially with regard to Tunku Abdul Rahman? Um, Johan, you want to go first? Sure, Juliet. Um, you know, I, I guess uh, when we all talk about independence, it's really about the birth of nationhood. Um, and in the context of the age of nations, I think a lot of us sometimes forget uh, that Malaysia is still a relatively young country. Yes. Um, America is, for example, almost 250 years old, um, you know, very, very much a veritable veteran of nationhood on the world stage. And uh, even in the region, Indonesia is 77 years old, uh, a good dozen or so years older than uh, the independent country that we are. Uh, if we imagine that at the point of independence, Malaysia was an infant, uh, we went through a childhood that was filled with innocence and, to some extent, naivety, an obsession with toys <laughs> such as the tallest buildings or national car projects. And, uh, <laughs> and I would say now that we're just about entering our teenage years. And if you think about the context of teenagehood, it's typically associated with a search for identity. And I think this is what Malaysia is facing right now. Right? It's a time when we ask ourselves very profound and deep questions about who we are. It's a period of volatility as we go back and forth role-playing between different choices before we figure out who we're going to be as a country. Um, now, whilst I don't have a clear answer to what Malaysia's identity will be, I, I, I really hope that as we celebrate you know, our Independence Day this year, whatever choice we end up making in the end, uh, we land on an identity for Malaysia that all of us, every single Malaysian out there can be proud of, an identity that reflects our collective hopes and dreams richness of our diversity and one that embodies the potential and promise, I guess, that our founding fathers held so closely to their hearts when they dreamt of our independence six and a half decades ago. And, and that's what Merdeka, I guess, means to me. And I'm sure uh, that in the context of Tunku Abdul Rahman, that's probably what he'd want for us as well. Mm-hmm. And Prof, if I can ask you, you know, I mean, what are uh, what are your thoughts as, as we approach 65 years of independence? Well, Juliet, um, politically, of course, we are free. But as we celebrate 65 years of political freedom, we need to overcome the slavery of our minds um, to racist and religious bigotry. Uh, We need to see our diversity as an asset, as an opportunity, rather than as a curse. We need to understand that unity does not mean uniformity and diversity does not mean dispute and fragmentation. I joined Johan um, in raising the issue that uh, um, we are a young nation and we are still searching for an identity. 
And I think our identity should be one that acknowledges our dazzling diversity. And Ida, if I can ask you the same question, what are some of your thoughts as we head into uh, our 65th year of independence? Um, I think for me, uh, probably coming from a different perspective as well as someone who is from Sarawak, so I'm Sarawakian, and a lot of the conversations around Madeka <laughs> and Malaysia uh, can be a bit different from how it's being discussed <laughs> in West, in the West. So I think a lot for me is reflecting upon how much more significant of a role that Sabah and Sarawak can play in yes. Malaysia today. Um, and I think, I, I know we'll be going into the foundations world a bit later on, but I think a lot of what we are trying to do in the foundation, and personally for me in my work as well, is to think about that. Like, how can we integrate and and give a platform for Sarawakians and Sabahans to play a bigger part in nation, nation building um, in Malaysia? And I, I know it's it's a, it's a, it's a cliche each year you have a a Sarakian or Sabahan friend uh, reminding you uh, that Malaysia Day is the one that we're looking at, uh, that we are that it's not uh, National Independence Day doesn't fall on the 31st of August and not on the 16th of September. And I think we joke about this all the time, but I think this, I think what lies underneath, it's a lot of still maybe unresolved tension yeah. and unresolved resentment personally as a Sarakian having experienced that growing up as well about what it really means to be Sarakian and also at the same time what does it really mean to be Malaysian so I think as we are still journeying through as a young nation um, I think one expectation and hope that I have as a young Malaysian as well is hoping that we'll be able to reconcile many of these tensions in the past and to be able to work closely together uh, as equal partners in the federation in the future mm -hmm. yeah. Eco partners, that's so important, isn't it? Because often, you know, it's always around this time that we, oh, okay, September, let's talk to our East Malaysian friends. You know, it really, Correct. really bugs me. Um, but let's talk about Tunku Abdul Rahman now. Um, uh, maybe, Johan, you can take this. You know, to what extent do you think that he was the architect of our constitution? Um, Prof. Dato Ishad is far better qualified, I think, to answer this question okay. from a historical and technical standpoint. But, you know, maybe I'll share my perspective on Tunku's spirit. I guess, which lies at the essence of our constitution. Uh, there's a great quote, actually, by Tuku Abdurrahman, which I love, and it goes something like this. It says, uh, Tuku said, what I would like to impress upon you as young Malaysians, and indeed all citizens of Malaysia, is that this nation of ours is not the creation of one man alone, but the will of all its people. Malaysia owes its existence to our mutual beliefs and common destiny. Right? That was Tuku's quote. Yeah. And I think it's a very deep quote. I think it says two things about Tunku's belief. Um, first of all, uh, he would probably say uh, that the Malaysian constitution was a team effort. Uh, I'm sure many contributed to its creation. And were Tunku alive today, I, I think he's the sort of man, the sort of person who would probably not take credit away from his colleagues and friends who also poured their hearts and souls into crafting this very important document. Right? He maybe would say something along the lines of, and I'm nowhere as near as uh, eloquent as he was, but uh, he probably would say something like, um, there were many architects to our constitution, and at best, I was merely the conductor to a magnificent orchestra, mm. or something even more profound and poetic. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think, I, I think that's Tunku, right? Now, secondly, I think Tunku recognized as a founding father that Malaysia was always meant to be, to take a quote from what Prof said earlier, a melting pot of different peoples, different cultures, religious beliefs, and political ideologies. And if we adopt 
the same conductor analogy here too. I think Tunku in his wisdom recognized that the constitution should accommodate for this cacophony of instruments, this multitude of diversity. Right? And I think it was in that spirit that Tunku and his team crafted the document that has become the foundational core to our country today. Right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's my feeling about Tunku Abdurrahman's relationship with the constitution that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and Prof, if I can get you to answer that same thing. I mean, we've spoken about this before on Law and Behold, but yeah, maybe you can share your thoughts again. Yeah, I think Tunku Abdurrahman was um, a great reconciler. Um, he tried to reconcile the irreconcilable, to create compromises, to reduce inter-ethnic and intra-ethnic conflicts. Uh, I agree with Johan. Um, it, he was one of the prime movers, but of course, this was a collective effort. You know, there were nearly 138 memorandums received by the Reed Commission. And many of the memorandums consisted of views which were extremely diverse and conflicting with each other. In addition to uh, dealing with his own party and the factions within his own party, Amno, uh, he, of course, had to bring the alliance parties together. He had to deal with the Malay rulers. He had to deal with the British who insisted that some particular prerequisites must be met uh, before the British agree to uh, depart from the country. So I I think his role was that of a great reconciler. Uh, Inter-ethnic cooperation was his dream and his mission, and I think his greatest uh, challenge. Though his vision was ahead of his time, um, it's now generally recognized around the world that the litmus test of success and stability uh, in any nation is the ability of the people to live together in peace, harmony, and mutual respect. I think Tunku was a mediator and reconciler, um, bringing diverse people together in 1955, then in 1957, and of course later on in 1963. uh, As Ida uh, correctly pointed out to us, 1963, of course, is also a very, very important uh, milestone in the life of our nation. Though Tunku was the head of an ethnic party since 1951, he actually worked ceaselessly to bring the various racial and religious communities of the country together under one political platform. And uh, um, uh, let me just end by saying that uh, in 1963, um, he brought Sabah Sarawak Singapore in on very special terms to recognize the uniqueness of these regions. Uh, uh, Sadly, many of the compromises that were written into the constitution were later on not honored, but that is something that um, we, the present generation, uh, has to work on uh, to try to remove many of the tensions that have been generated, which Ida talked about. Thank you.
Let's just go for one quick break. When we come back, uh, Prof, I just want to get your thoughts on why the Constitution was a masterpiece of accommodation and compromise. I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, Johan Rosali Watuth. They are both trustees at Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and also Aida Tian. She's the Deputy CEO of Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. We're taking a look at, well, Tunku's legacy, especially as we head into Independence Day uh, coming up next week. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 18. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today are Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, Johan Rosali Watuth and Aida Tien. Uh, they are all with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman, uh, Prof. Shad and Johan are trustees and Aida is the Deputy CEO. We're talking about Tunku Abdul Rahman's legacy, especially as we head into uh, Independence Day just uh, in a few days' time. So before the break, uh, Prof, you know, you were telling me why, uh, you know, why you thought uh, both Johan and Prof, you were talking about why uh, we thought that Tunku was the architect of our constitution but as Johan said you know he would have said that it's a it's a team effort you know it was a, effort, definitely yes. a team effort um, and Prof you know this is something that we've uh, spoken about quite a bit as well but you've often said our constitution was a masterpiece of accommodation and compromise can you remind us why? Yes um, it has many flaws without doubt but despite these flaws it was indeed a masterpiece of compassion and compromise. It sought to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable, the old and the new, the indigenous and the imported. And I think here was a great challenge um, to win over the support of the Malay population. The constitution had to reflect many indigenous features. Mm. At the same time, a constitution must hitch itself to the stars. It must, it must take note of the demands, the realities, the ideals of the modern era. Now, among the indigenous features of the Malay archipelago that the constitution adopted were the unique system of multi-party monarchs united by a conference of rulers, Malay reserved lands, Islam as is the religion of the federation, affirmative action provisions to preserve the pre-independence special position of the Malays. Malay customs, Bahasa Malayu, and weightage for rural areas uh, in the drawing up of electoral boundaries. But at the same time, the ethnic Malay Muslim features were balanced by many provisions suitable for our dazzlingly diverse multiracial, multi-religious society. For example, citizenship was granted to nearly 1.3 million non-Malays. The total population at that time was less than 7 million. So 1.3 was a substantial portion. I think this was a remarkable act of accommodation for the age. The electoral process gave to everyone a right to vote and a right to get elected. The chapter on fundamental rights granted rights to all citizens irrespective of race or religion. At the federal level, membership of the judiciary, the cabinet, parliament, the public services, and the special commissions under the constitution are open to all citizens. Um, there are special safeguards for the uniqueness of Sabah and Sarawak. I just want to point out to Ida, 88 Articles of the Constitution were amended or inserted to take note of the uniqueness 
of Saba Sarawak. I know some of those articles were uh, amended later on. Um, uh, we'll have to have a special session on that uh, around Malaysia Day. So I, I think uh, there was this tremendous recognition that there has to be moderation, there has to be accommodation. For example, though Islam is the religion of the Federation, Malaysia is not a theocratic state. The constitution is supreme, Article 4, Clause 1. This constitution is the supreme law of the Federation. And any law passed after Merdeka Day, which is inconsistent with this constitution, shall, to the extent of the inconsistency, be void. And this is something that is not generally known. Article 3, Clause 1 says, Islam is the religion of the Federation, but all other religions may be practiced in peace and harmony. But Article 3, Clause 4 says, nothing in this article derogates from any other provision of the constitution. So though Islam is the religion of the federation, nothing in article three takes away, negates, cancels out any other institution, right, duty, procedure uh, that is laid down by the constitution. Uh, Sharia law does not apply to non-Muslims. Um, though Bahasa Malayu is the national language for all official purposes, there is protection for the formal study in all schools of all other, all other languages. If 14 kids in a school make an application that a language should be taught, Education Act says the school must make an attempt. Though Article 89 reserves some lands for Malays, it also provides that no non-Malay land shall be appropriated for Malay reserves. Article 153 on the special position of Malays was later on amended to include special position of the natives of Sabah Sarawak. But what is not often noted is, it also says that Agong has a duty to protect the legitimate interests of other communities. Now, I know a lot of these things have not worked well. I acknowledge that justice is not in legislation but in administration. But the point is this, the constitution is not at fault for that. It's actually you and me and the administrators who have not lived up to the promise of the constitution. Uh, I'll be mentioning later on about what perhaps needs to be done. But this much is certain, the constitution was a balancing act. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, looking at Sabah and Sarawak, especially, Prof, you know, uh, would you say, and, you know, just thinking of what Aida said as well, you know, is there a gap between the promise and the performance, especially with relation to those two states? Oh, massive, massive gap indeed. <laughs> I, I know that the uh, most uh, well-known uh, uh, or most uh, notorious uh, issue is uh, uh, sharing of uh, the wealth uh, I think that's the uh, issue that gets the most publicity. In the case of Sabah, the constitution says 40% of the revenues earned uh, from the state, 40% should be returned to Sabah. Uh, but actually there are many other issues. For example, um, it's not very well known that in 1963, Sabah and Sarawak did not have an official religion in their state. Sarawak still does not have an official religion in its state. Uh, I, I know Sabah later on amended its constitution to adopt Islam. 
the idea was to recognize that Sabah Sarawak religiously, culturally, ethnically were different. They were unique. Then in terms of Bahasa Malayu, um, actually Sabah Sarawak have tremendous autonomy. The National Language Act does not apply there unless Sabah Sarawak acknowledge it, adopt it. Sabah did, Sarawak did not. Sarawak still has a lot of autonomy uh, in, in that area. In many, many other issues, Borneoization, uh, there are clearly a lot of complaints that uh, though Sabah Sarawak have made tremendous strides in terms of educational development, nevertheless, uh, when it comes to major posts, the major posts are nevertheless uh, uh, still held by West Malaysian. But I think in uh, one or two areas, the promises of the constitution have been observed, for example, in immigration. Uh, in matters of immigration, if I go to Sabah Sarabok, I've got to go through a, a, an immigration check. At one time, they used to examine your passport. Yeah. Now, the IC, IC is sufficient, but nevertheless, Sabah Sarabok have uh, uh, autonomy. And in fact, there have been cases where people have challenged and said, before you expel me from the states of Sabah Sarawak, West Malaysian is expelled, you must hear me out first. I have a right to be heard, or the alterum patum, natural justice. And the courts have said no. When it comes to immigration matters, the rights of Sabah Sarawak are not subject to judicial review. Uh, now, I just want to um, I, as I said earlier, perhaps we'll have a separate session on this in the Malaysia Day. But I, I want to just add this point, and I think Johan also hinted on this. Uh, actually, in all federations, uh, Julian, there is a lot of tension between the states with each other and the states with the federal government. All ten, in all federations, about 25 to 26 federations in the world. And the common feature is they fight with each other over river water. They fight with each other over, over territorial boundaries and of course over, uh, over financial resources. Uh, we are only um, 58, 59 years old when it comes to Malaysia. That's not a long time in the life of a nation. And I'm hopeful that actually things will improve indeed. Thank you. Okay. And I guess, you know, the, the question, of course, always then that we ask is what can we actually do to bridge these gaps, isn't it, Prof? Yes, indeed. Uh, the government can do a great deal, but I think all of us uh, ha have a, a great uh, role to play. And I want to begin by saying that uh, for a very long time, Juliet, uh, Malaya and Malaysia were regarded uh, as an exemplar of a nation in which democracy and development, religion and secularism, unity and diversity can coexist. Sadly, we, we have regressed. Sadly, from being a plural society, except for a few tragic days in 1969, we have become a society buffeted by the divisive problems of race and religion and region, race, religion and region. Many of us are enslaved by the thinking of identity uh, politics. But I, I will not dwell uh, on the darker side. Let me just dream dreams and uh, let me articulate some hopes. And I want to say this 
that actually we all we all of us as ordinary citizens have a role to play this is not something only for the government of the day i think we have the uh, ability and the opportunity to plant seeds of understanding tolerance and mutual respect to build bridges and uh, not walls um to begin with there should be greater emphasis on constitutional literacy and with the help of vfm actually the constitutional literacy committee does do that periodically to disseminate knowledge of the constitution and of its glittering generalities and uh, uh, fabulous compromises uh, we should search for commonalities uh, we should recognize diversity as an asset we should distinguish between racism which is hatred for others and a desire to keep them down and a human rights activism in favor of a race religion or a community not necessarily our own for example you and i could work for example for the uh, orang asli or the orang asal uh, that's not racism that is human rights activism uh, so i think we should distinguish uh, sadly many people believe uh, that in order to bring up your community you have to bring down others and that's not necessary parents have a role to play we must expose our kids to multiracial experiences to teach them respect and of course to do that we have to practice it ourselves the government of course can do a great deal but uh, maybe that should be a a separate session but i'll just mention one thing amongst the malay community the majority community uh and of course saba sarawak have a fabulous tradition of intercommunal living and i think west malaysia can learn from saba sarawak but even within the malay tradition centuries old malay tradition of inclusiveness and moderation i think that needs to be revived may i quote to you from usm uh, professor ahmed fauzi abdul hamid uh, who i admire very much who said due to the arabization of malay society and the infusion of the saudi based salafist dos, doc, discourse into our education system a narrow punitive version of islam is replacing the admirable centuries old malay tradition of inclusiveness and moderation so i think within malay society within malay history there is the tradition of inclusiveness and to look in saba and sarawak the tradition actually is not of identity politics but it's a totally different and more beautiful tradition so i think a great deal needs to be done um just perhaps one final point hate speech laws already exist we have the penal code we have the sedition act we have the communication multimedia act what we don't have is effective and equal enforcement of hate speech laws mm. um for example uh, just a few days ago um there was this idea articulated that corruption um uh, is uh, the speciality of a particular race and a particular religion a particular religions i think this is a thoroughly racist 
uneducated and false accusation. And I think those of those people in leadership positions, including religious leaders, should stand up and speak out against this. May I quote Jesse Jackson, who said that leaders of substance do not follow opinion polls. They mold opinion, not with guns or dollars of position, but with the power of their souls. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Um, Johan, Ida, I'm not sure if there's anything that you wanted to add to what Prof has said. Uh, anything you want to, to respond to? Anything at all? It's really hard following I that. Know. <laughs> how do you how do you follow that? Right? Very well, yeah. I, and I'm not going to try and outquote Jesse Jackson. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's done a great job. Okay, <laughs> okay. all right. Um, but Ida, anything that you wanted to say, maybe in terms of, you know, bridging gaps and things like that? Anything you want to add? Yes, um, I think the... I, I want to follow up on a point that Professor Shad uh, spoke about the the rich cultural, religious, historical differences and diversity of Sarawak and Sabah, right? And the status that Sabah Sarawak have as equal partners in Malaysia. And I'm speaking also as a Sarawakian who grew up learning of a history that was quite different mm. or learning of a history that was probably not the most representative uh, of what has happened. That's one, but also two of a history that has been largely more uh, Merdeka as well as West Malaysian centric, and yes. having grown up not feeling like perhaps I have learned enough about my own state. Mm. And that's not to say, of course. I mean, one of the one of the quotes that we always hear is that the history is written by the victors, right? And I think for to this part, I think what is most important, and this is not uh, just about a government policy, but just as a point uh, for every one of us as Malaysian is to really educate ourselves about our history. Um, beyond the formal education that we that we, we receive, but also to look beyond that, to speak with people, to look at oral history, to look at a traditional history as well, to have a clearer and more holistic understanding of how history was written. And the reason why I say this is because, it, which leads to my next point, which is about building understanding. And I think as for such, Porsche was mentioning about people who may be frustrated with immigration laws in Sarawak and Sabah may just may not have just been aware about how uh, how the form the the formation of Malaysia came about if you were fed a certain version of how Malaysia was 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 made and I think a lot of this could be stemmed back to having uh, more holistic education and more inclusive platform to allow for Sabah and Sarawakian voices uh, and two it's an acknowledgement that when we talk about wanting to build Malaysia that there is no one monolithic identity and that it can still allow the sort of diversity and richness of Sabah and Sarawak. And it's, in, in, in Sarawak, it's crazy. Uh, you walk on the street, you can't really tell who is, who is of what race. Interreligious as well as intercultural marriage is very, very common. Uh, and even in terms of our demographic breakdown, break, breakdown isn't probably as polarizing as it is in the West. And so I think in a way, maybe Sarawakian culture, not to say that uh, racism doesn't ex exist on a micro level, but I think as a whole, if you make a comparison, I think the demographic itself also doesn't allow for the same kind of racist rhetorics that may be commonly used mm. uh, in West Malaysia, because that would not fly in East Malaysia. You will be hurting the sentiment of at least one or maybe even more than three um, uh, sentiments uh, on the ground. And I think that's really important for us to really think as well. When we talk about a Malaysia that's united, are we really talking about a Malaysia that is singular? Uh, or are we really and homogenous? Or are we thinking about a Malaysia that 
also that's able to reconcile and balance this tension between the diversity we have, celebrate and acknowledge the history behind that, but also finding a commonality and a common spirit that we all strive towards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ignoring that rhetoric, right, that comes from, you know, those who are trying to disunite us. That's very, very important as well. Let's just go for one quick break. When we come back, let's talk more about uh, Yaya Santunku Abdul Rahman. I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, also on the Board of Trustees at Yaya Santunku Abdul Rahman, Johan Rosali Watuth. He is a trustee also at Yaya Santunku Abdul Rahman and Aida Tian, the Deputy CEO of Yaya Santunku Abdul Rahman. Just one more quick break and we'll come back and discuss more about our independence and um, yeah, ahead of Malaysia Day as well as Merdeka Day. Keep it right here on Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me today are the folks from Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. I have with me Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi and Johan Rosali Watuth, both trustees at Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and Aida Tian, the Deputy CEO of the organisation. We're talking about independence uh, also uh, ahead of Malaysia Day, ahead of uh, Merdeka Day. We're reflecting on uh, the late Tunku Abdul Rahman Putra Al-Hajj's uh, uh, you know, role in uh, getting our independence. And now if you can just talk about Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman a little bit. Um, I know it was set up, uh, you know, to help potential future leaders of Malaysia and as a very, very important thing, regardless of colour or creed. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how uh, the Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation is preserving Tunku's legacy through its programmes and initiatives. Uh, Johan? Sure, happy to kick off. One concept which I believe uh, Tunku held very close to his heart is the concept of freedom or independence, right? Which is very appropriate, I think, given his role as the father of our country's independence. Um, And indeed, uh, he was so fundamentally committed to this concept that his own personal crest featured the word bebaskan, meaning to free or liberate. Mm. Um, Poverty, in a way, I think, creates a prison for many young people with a lot of potential. And uh, because of circumstances really beyond their choice, they end up being trapped in a situation where they're denied opportunities. Now, in my view, uh, Waita, Yaya Santukudaraman, is uniquely positioned to bebaskan young people with potential who don't necessarily have access to opportunities. Bebaskan in this context, uh, for us, is about using education to free those who were trapped by poverty from oppression, from discrimination, and also from prejudice. And through education, uh, those who don't have the best starts in life have the potential to pursue their dreams for a better life. And I think this is a very Malaysian dream. Uh, It is to me a great way, I think, to propagate Tunku's idealism and to propagate his legacy. I I personally feel that he'd be very pleased, uh, if he was still around today, that there is a group of idealistic young people led by individuals like Aida in the Waita team who are passionate about creating opportunities for Malaysians, particularly those who come from underprivileged backgrounds. And I think Tunku will be very proud that there is this team of young people working within an organization that bears his name today. Right? So that that's, I think, uh, you know, how I, I, I think about Tunku in the context of yes, and Tunku Raman. Mm-hmm. And Aida, how about for you? I just want to add as well, uh, led by young people, but supported by people with them like uh, Johan and so as Prof Shad. Uh, I, think, I think just to follow and echo uh, what Johan has shared, um, I think when we speak to about liberty, 
and, and providing or empowering students from lower income backgrounds. I think one of the things that we're also trying to do and preserve in terms of Tunku's legacy is also his values. Um, more often than not, when we talk about supporting or helping the poor or people in poverty, I think we tend to take quite a sympathetic or a charitable approach mm -hmm. uh, to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're quite familiar as well with uh, the sort of poverty porn that we see on, on media sometimes. Um, and this feels a certain maybe misguided or one-dimensional understanding of poverty and what it really means to help and empower. And I suppose it uh, and what we're trying to do is to really dig deep into what it means when we talk about Tunku's values, for example, in compassion, right? In supporting and empowering those uh, perhaps without a voice. And the idea here isn't to speak on behalf of those that we support, but it's to provide them an opportunity and allow them to raise their own voice, to speak about things that they are passionate about, to speak about issues that hurt or may, may impact them the most. And so one of the things that we really want to do as we're into Gabi Rahman Foundation isn't purely just, for example, giving scholarships to our students so they can pursue higher education. It's providing with them with the skills, the knowledge, the mindset, and the grit, actually, to also think about what role they can play for their own community. We are here also in a way to try and create a generation of leaders who can solve the problems that we have spoken about in Malaysia, whether it be it historically or what we are facing currently. This can be on the national uh, platform or it can also be in the community or even in a personal platform. And that's something that we really want to grow, the idea of providing or rather um, creating a generation of self-sustaining critical thinking, as well as compassionate leaders uh, in the process. And that's how we see in terms of empowerment, uh, rather than just providing them with aid uh, in a short-term basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. And, you know, speaking of uh, Yaya Santungu Abdul Rahman, you know, how, uh, what, what role do, do you guys play in nurturing, you know, our young leaders uh, of, for Malaysia? Mm. Um, I think we do a few things. Uh, primarily, the first thing that we do is that we provide uh, holistic scholarships uh, for students from underserved backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, we take quite an holistic approach towards um, assessing needs as well as merits. I think one of the challenges perhaps many students would have encountered in Malaysia is the struggles of applying for scholarships or applying for any kind of yeah. entrance uh, process that we tend to still look at merits from a very limited uh, lens. The idea that we look at grades, we look at your extracurricular activities. But more often than not, especially you want to talk about serving students from the lower income bracket, is that they would not have had been given the exposure or the cultural capital to compete yeah. on an equal level field. Yeah. So what we're trying to do at Waitai as well is to really reassess what we mean when we talk about excellence. Uh, we are not here to provide quote-unquote charity scholarships for students who are from uh, poor backgrounds. Neither are we here to provide quote-unquote merit scholarships for students with the best grades and the best extracurricular um, um, involvement. We are trying to look between the balance of both. Given the, the sets of cards that life has uh, given you, what have you done with it? And how have you maximized the potential? And what does max, uh, best potential look uh, from an individual to an individual? And for us, it's also trying to balance between, for example, a student uh, from, let's say, a B40 background. You may not be scoring a 4.0 CGPA, uh, but you may be also holding down multiple jobs to support your family. And in the process of pursuing those careers and jobs, have also 
build invaluable leadership experiences and leadership skills that may not be traditionally awarded and rewarded through the system that we have today. Um, so that's something that we're trying to do, to change the narrative around what it means to be a scholar, uh, what it means when we say a person is of need or a person has potential. So that's one thing that we're trying to do at the foundation. But going beyond that as well is to think about what role do we play in imparting the values and the skills for them to succeed uh, after university. So we also run a pre-university program, for example, for students also from the B40 background to allow them to discover for themselves what are their truest ambitions after they graduate from SPM or for our scholarship when they've graduated from university. And beyond that is so to think about how the role they eventually play should not only serve a personal interest, but a national interest as well. And I think we try to do it through our own leadership programs that we run. We are very big on mentoring. So we love to tap into uh, the wisdom as well as the experiences of people around us. We have been really lucky to work with incredible mentors from multiple sectors, from the private and the public sector, who have come in and have touched the lives of a lot of the students that we work with. And those are the kind of role models that more often than not do not are not present in the lives of the students that we serve and have made a tremendous impact in changing the life trajectory of the students that, that we really want uh, to support. Mm-hmm. And I would say all of them probably as well, you know, embody the spirit of uh, Tunku himself as well, right? I'm sure. That's the goal. That's the goal. Okay. Uh, uh, Johan, is there anything you wanted to add to what Ida said? Ida has given a wonderful perspective actually from uh, the management's point of view, um, you know, in terms of what uh, Waita is all about. Maybe I'll share a little bit of a perspective from a trustee point of view. Sure. Um, you know, I think for any organization, whether it's Waita or, you know, any other organization to play a meaningful role in nurturing young leaders um, there are probably three core elements that have to be present. Um, namely, uh, these three core elements are uh, impact, reach, and sustainability, right? Or IRS for short, not to be confused with the American Tax Collection Authority. <laughs> um, so, in terms of impact, uh, you know, I think it's it's critical for Waita's work to bear real outcomes. And I think this is what Ida spoke about earlier, right? When she talks about outcomes, mm. um, you know, to this to this end, I think the team spends a lot of time selecting scholars who potentially just don't just um, you know meet certain acad- academic criteria but also embody uh, the most impact potential in terms of nation building in the future right so it's not just important to have scholars who are academically bright or capable but equally we need to work very hard to find those who embody tunku's ideals and values right and this is exactly what Ida touched on earlier um, so, you know, I think that's a very important part of the Waita mandate uh, in terms of impact. A lot of follow-up work, I think, is done by the team after the award of the scholarships uh, to track the progress of the scholars and then actually empower them to make meaningful progress, both academically and elsewhere. Right? So I think that's the impact piece. Um, on REACH, uh, Waita has done a lot of work to grow awareness of Waita's programs uh, and scholarship opportunities. Uh, this includes expanding Waita's reach significantly, in fact, into other states. Um, it's something that I'm particularly proud of. Uh, we have scholars at Waita that come from all over Peninsula Malaysia, as well as Sabah and Sarawak. And in the future, uh, I'm also hopeful that we can meaningfully expand Waita's focus and reach to include vocational studies as well. Hmm. From a reach perspective, why is this important? I believe that vocational education is an area that should get a lot more attention in terms of nurturing future leaders in industry for nation building. 
right? Yeah. So that's the IR. Now we get to the S, the sustain, sustainability front. Um, you know, for WITA, it shouldn't just be about handing out money, like Ida said, you know, doling out uh, cash for scholarships, but also about designing an end-to-end program that nurtures future leaders even before they take the steps into university, as well as preparing them for their careers after university as well. And to this end, um, you know, WITA uh, runs the Closing the Gap program to provide mentorship to students ahead of their entry into tertiary education. Um, Ida and her team were specifically brought on board, actually, by, uh, you know, the management team to bring the Closing the Gap program to WITA, which has actually been wildly successful for us and created a huge amount of impact already. So I'm very, very specifically passionate about the industry training and internship initiatives that WITA has started to facilitate. Why? Um, I think this, these initiatives would help level the playing field for scholars who typically do not get opportunities to undertake internships. Uh, Ida mentioned this earlier. And many of them end up working during their holidays, basically, uh, in non-industry-specific um, roles to send money home or to pay for basic necessities. Yeah. Right? They're not really gaining experience that will help them in their future career they're working because they have to, and they've got no choice but to do so. WITA is working on a program that would help to equalize the playing field by reducing or entirely eliminating the gap between WITA scholars and other students who come from more well-off backgrounds. Nurturing leadership, I believe, is also about eliminating systemic barriers and gaps that stop young people with tremendous potential from ultimately getting into jobs and roles that they are passionate about. And this is what WITA has been and can continue to play a role, a major role in doing. Mm-hmm. I love the sustainability part of it as well, right? Because, yes, you're not just giving them the money and saying, nah, you know, educate yourself and then go find yourself in the world. But you also help to do all these other things as well and ensure that, uh, yeah, they uphold the, the spirit of, you know, everything that WITA stands for, isn't it? Even when they are in the working world. And then, you know, hopefully they continue to do that, uh, to share that with others, you know, and nurture other uh, future leaders as well, I'm sure, Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I'm afraid we're just running out of time. But, um, you know, just before I let all three of you go, uh, any last message that you'd like to leave us with, um, you know, just ahead of Malaysia Day, ahead of Merdeka Day, uh, yeah, any message at all? Maybe, Prof, you want to start first? Just want to wish everyone happy Merdeka Day. And as I began, um, the spirit of Merdeka is to free ourselves from the slavery of race and religious politics. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Uh, Johan, how about for you? Uh, I come from a corporate perspective, uh, Juliet. So, you know, uh, in the corporate world uh, nowadays, as you rightly mentioned earlier, we talk a lot about sustainability. <laughs> for a company to be sustainable in social terms, there have to be three elements present, which we call DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Diversity is about respecting the different backgrounds different people come from. Equity is about providing justice and opportunities for all. And inclusivity is about ensuring that everyone feels welcomed and are also encouraged and invited to participate in our country's success. I personally feel that these principles translate really well from the corporate world into the nationhood yes. conversation that we're having today. Right. So my hope is Madeka for Malaysia is that our country is one that will always strive for diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Inclusive, inclusive. Happy Merdeka to all the listeners and Selamat Hari Merdeka semua. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Johan. And Aida, 
Uh, how about for you? I was our Arakian friend today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think the I think the simple message that I just want uh, to convey uh, are two things. Uh, number one is as Arakian as well as uh, to educate ourselves uh, about the significance of Merdeka Day, Malaysia Day, and really talk about. And I think this is a great time for us to reflect upon the progress and strides that we have made as a nation, but also be honest about the areas that we can always improve and work on. Uh, because more often than not, inequality, discrimination, injustices, they don't hit the people like you and I, but they often, more often than not, hit those who are the most vulnerable, who may not have the voice to speak up. And so I think that's my first message. And the second one is in relation to that, I think my hope for Malaysia um, in the future is definitely for a Malaysia where everyone deserves or has the chance uh, to be able to fulfill their best potential, no matter the background that they come from, and no matter the color of their skin or their religion, and that we will all be united in terms of the compassionate uh, Malaysia uh, that Yesantung Gwabdirama um, also envisions uh, for the country. So, Smart Medica Day as well as Smart High Malaysia. Thank you so much, all of you, uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, Johan Rosali Watuth, and Aida Thien, all with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. If you'd like to find out more about the foundation, just head to Yayasan Tar, that's yayasantar.org.my. Find out more, you, uh, find out everything there. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash learn, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.